Can I invite you to open up your Bibles or turn on the smartphone app on your phone as we turn to our Bible reading this morning as we continue in our series in Exodus. And Peter Rainey's going to bring us our Bible reading today. Our reading is uh, Exodus 14, verses 1 to 31, and that's on page 71 in the Pew Bibles. It's page 71, Pew Bibles, Exodus 14, 1 to 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Piharahoth between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephron. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Piharahoth, opposite Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go, go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a stronger east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, 
the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered their chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Amen. Let's pray. Our good, gracious, and sovereign God. As we come this morning, we give you thanks for the safe return of the Rwanda team. We give you thanks for the time they were able to spend getting to know people, building relationships, sharing, and being taught. We thank you for your protection, your leading, and for the blessing the experience has been. And we pray that your guiding hand will be known to each of them and to the wider congregation as the way forward is considered. Father, may this partnership see your name honoured, your kingdom advanced in Rwanda and Northern Ireland, and blessing brought to your people. Bless this partnership, we pray. And as we think about our world, we want to pray for the American elections this week. As we despair over the choice of candidates, may you remind us of your sovereign rule and care over this whole world. May people's hope and affections be set foremost on you and your kingdom. Through this election, may you bring about your will for America and kingdom and glory for your kingdom. May the next president be led to a firm understanding of the truth of the gospel and have a commitment to obey your word. By your grace, Heavenly Father, may the next president be better than so many of us expect and better than is deserved. We remember the ongoing situations in Syria and Iraq. And Father, we do pray for those refugees who arrive on the shores of this land. May they experience welcome and not scorn or responses driven by fear. May we as a church respond with compassion, hospitality and love, recognizing the arrival of these migrants as an opportunity to extend Christ's love and not a threat to be feared. But we know that the only sustainable solution to these crises are peace within these lands. And so we pray for peacemakers who will wage peace in these troubled lands, for wisdom for government leaders who face decisions about how to respond to these conflicts. Father, for Syria and Iraq, may your will be done in these places, we pray. And as we come to think about our own church family, 
We remember this morning those here in hospital or those suffering in their own homes today. Those families who are hurting as they watch loved ones in pain and we want to commit them to you. Father, draw near to those who are ill at this time. Be with those who are waiting treatment, those going through treatment, those who have surgery planned within the next few weeks. Be their rock and fortress, their shield and safety, their deliverer and refuge. And through it all, may it be seen that you are our great physician. And that perfect healing of the soul is healing fully and wholly through Jesus Christ. For those within our church family today who are mourning the loss of loved ones, we thank you that there's peace and comfort knowing that you are the resurrection and the life. Knowing that because of your death and resurrection, we can say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Father, we do not mourn as the world mourns, but yet we still grieve loss. And so we remember those families in our fellowship this morning who are hurting, those who are suffering that pain of bereavement. For those who've lost loved ones in recent days and those for whom time has passed, but the pain is still very real, we pray for your comfort and your peace that you will indeed keep your people in suffering close to you. Father, we rejoice that no one cares for us more than you do. No one can do anything greater than you for us. We thank you that we know that Jesus is in control and that Jesus is with us and that he will give us grace and strength in every situation we need. And may that be our comfort and our strength as we head into another week. And we ask this now in the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning and uh, lovely to see each of you back. Uh, we last Sunday worshipped in Kilkenny Presbyterian. It's just lovely to be back with you again. I uh, haven't been in my home congregation last Sunday. Okay, Let's take a Bible um, and turn to page 71. And as you're doing that, let me pray for us this morning as we come to this passage of the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus. Father God, we thank you this morning for being together. We thank you for the sense of your presence amongst us. And we pray, Lord, that we would hear your voice speak to us through your word. Lord, give us humble, teachable hearts, we pray. For we acknowledge this through Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. So please keep that passage open. Chapters 13 and 14 and 15. We won't be covering them all this morning. In 2011... The songwriter and singer Jamie Lawson released a single hit called Wasn't Expecting That. I don't know if you know the author or the song. It's quite popular. The song moves through certain seasons of life. It starts off with the moment when he meets a girl, and here's what the song says. It was only a smile, but my heart went wild. I wasn't expecting that. Your hands slipped into mine. I wasn't expecting that. The song then moves on, and he's married, and with kids, and the lyrics go like this. Time doesn't take long. Three kids up and gone. I wasn't expecting that. Then finally, the song seeks to express some of the difficulties or hardships that come into life, and it says this. When the nurses, they came, 
said it's come back again. I wasn't expecting that. Then you closed your eyes. You took my heart by surprise. I wasn't expecting that. And this song by Lawson, wasn't expecting that, resonates with us because life can often take twists and turns that we're not expecting. Some of those twists and turns can be so welcomed, like bringing great joy and happiness, like promotion or a deal done at work, or even a baby on the way or exam results that went better than expected. But other twists and turns, which like illness or loss or teenagers that are off the rails or financial troubles, can bring fear, worry, sadness, hurt, and even loss at times because you weren't expecting it. And this morning as we come to God's word in chapters 13, 14, and 15, there's a sense in which the people of God who have just been rescued, taken from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, were not expecting what is about to occur. Because as you know, if you've been here over the last number of Sunday mornings from previous chapters, the Pharaoh at last has said to them, you can go, leave everyone Men and women, boys and girls, and all their livestock were to go. But more than that, the Egyptians, God caused the Egyptians to give them silver and gold. They left with full hands as they left Egypt. They left even, do you see it there in chapter 13, verse 20, with the bones of a relative, Joseph, who Joseph had promised, take me with you when you get out of Egypt. Don't forget my bones. I don't want to be left here in Egypt. So here are all the people leaving Egypt, full hands, bones in their hands belonging to their relatives, and they're on the way out, freedom at last, rescued by God. And you can understand, can't you, how they might be thinking, you know, life can only get better now. Life can only improve now. We've been slaves for 400 years plus. They were now on the journey to the promised land. They were heading in the right direction, but they weren't expecting what is about to occur from chapter 13, verse 17 onwards. Follow with me. And this is my first heading this morning, an unexpected route. Do you see it in verses 17 to 20, or verses 17 to 20 of chapter 13? Most of us today, when we go on a car journey, isn't this right? And we're not familiar where we're going, we'll type into the sat-nav or our app on our phone, and it'll give us the quickest and fastest route to the place we're going. But this wasn't the case for the Israelites. Look at verses 17 and 18. They were going... They were not going the shortest route, which would have been northwards through Philistine, but rather, verse 18 says, they were to go around by the desert towards the Red Sea, a longer route. Most of us get very annoyed when we're given the longest route, aren't we? We're annoyed with the Safanav or the wife or the husband who's told us to go that way, and it ends up being longer. But the question you've got to ask is this, why is God taking his people this way. End of verse 17 tells us one reason for God leading them this way. If they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. And what does this verse tell us? On the way out of Egypt, freedom at last, life can't be any better. Instead of going the shortest route, God takes them the longest route. And you know why? Because God knows what is, what is best for his people. God knows what is best for his people. God knew his people, and having faced the tyranny and the slavery of Pharaoh for these last number of years, 
they were not up for another battle with other people. They would wilt. They had the potential to change their minds and head back to Egypt. So God, knowing his people, decides to lead them a longer route, a route that would not take them directly into contact with other nations' armies. Sometimes we don't know why God allows for certain things to happen. That sickness, that death, that unexpected hardship or troubles or trials. We don't know why God sometimes closes the doors of opportunity for us and takes us somewhere that we never expected or even never wanted to be. We also don't know what God has shielded us from or what he has kept us from. But here in these verses before us this morning, there is reassurance, there is comfort, there is confidence in the reality that God knows he knows you and I so well that his ways and purposes will always be for our good, our protection, our preservation. And you know what? Sometimes that means going the longest route. Sometimes that means the road of suffering, the road of hardships for us. And we go, why? Why is he doing this? Why is he taking me this way? Folks, this morning, our confidence and our trust can be that God knows what is best. And he knows his people better than we know ourselves. And this second heading that we have is also this, an unexpected guide. God doesn't just rescue and bring his people the long route without guiding them. And you see that in verse 17. God did not lead them through the Philistine country. Verse 18, God led the people around by the desert. But most spectacularly, we see in verses 20 and 22 how God leads and guides his people. Verse 21 says, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud on their way, and by night the pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day and by night. Here are the people in desert wilderness. Imagine the scene, unfamiliar territory. They're not a desert nomadic people. They're out in the desert. How are they going to be guided? There's an estimated 600,000 people on this route of older and younger generations, animals all wandering around. Yet God is with his people, leading and guiding them in the form of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night. In Genesis, and even in chapter 3 of Exodus, we see God use cloud, smoke, and fire to illustrate his presence. And here God is leading and guiding his people in the desert land. Matthias says this in his commentary. It is sufficient to note that here the people were not redeemed and then left to their own best devices. They never moved without the direction of God's presence in the cloud of pillar or the pillar of fire. But what about us today? How does God lead his people? How does he guide them through the journey of life? He does it by giving us his Holy Spirit and his word so that we would know him and know how to journey with him. It's his presence with us. And folks, we don't have the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire today, but you have the word of God. You have the spirit of God living in you if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. These are his presence, guiding and leading you. And that means, and God's leading of his people takes an unusual twist. You see it there in chapter 14, verse two, when God tells them to turn back from where they had camped. This move was utter madness even illogical. Here they are camped, and God tells them, turn back, face back. 
and go there. This leading by God meant that Pharaoh thought they were lost, wandering around the wilderness. Look at them. They're lost out in the wilderness, moving around. But things get worse. Verses 5 and 9, we're told that Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds again. They realized what they'd done. They realized they'd lost their slaves and all the service they give. And from verse 6 onwards, the best of the Egyptian army, chariots and soldiers were mustered and they went after the Israelites. And if you flick over to chapter, chapter 15, verse 9 for a moment, you'll see there Pharaoh's intention and motivation in song. The enemy boasts, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the, the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. This is Pharaoh, ready to pursue the Israelites, captured in song by the Israelites. These are the intentions of Pharaoh and his army. And from chapter 14, verse 9 onwards, it tells us that they caught up with the Israelites where they had camped by the sea. So God's leading and guiding had led them to this point where they now face Pharaoh head on with his army and behind them is the sea. They are, as we might say, between a rock and a hard place. Do I go to the sea or do I face the Egyptian army? And yet the Lord had led them to this point. And chapter 14, verse 10, do you see it there? Captures the people's response as they see the chariots of Egypt advancing towards them. They say, they looked up and they were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. And their fear expressed itself in question in Moses. Do you see it in verse 11? Was it because there was no graves in Egypt, Moses, that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Verse 12 gives you an insight into some of the conversation that happened in Egypt before they left. Didn't we say to you, Moses, in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now, if you're brought between a rock and a hard place, between the sea and the armies coming abroad, there's going to be some rowing, isn't there? Who do you blame? Who are you going to blame? And the people turn on Moses and they say, we told you to leave us in Egypt. Look where we are. Having been rescued, they now believe they're going to die in the sandy wilderness. Their fear they're terrified, and it causes them to turn on Moses, their leader, and ultimately God. Did you rescue us for this purpose? We were better off where we were. At least we were going to be alive and had food. Fear and doubt. Maybe they're asking the question, who's in control here? Their response and thinking and their belief can often mirror our own belief and our own responses to God as well, can't they? Have you ever asked this? God, did you rescue me so that my family would think I'm mad for following you? God, did you rescue me to make my life more difficult with my wife or my husband or children? God, who's in control here? And this is what the people do. Having been rescued out of Egypt, they now are asking questions. We were better off, better off unredeemed, better off as slaves in Egypt. And look what Moses says to them in verses 13. And this, can, this often happens. Moses says to them, to the people in verse 13, and he's brave. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the salvation or deliverance that the Lord will bring to you today. They were to stand firm, not to be afraid, 
to wait and see the Lord's salvation or deliverance. And verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Wow. What a moment. As the army is coming towards you, as the sea is behind you, and Moses says, don't be afraid. Stand firm. Wait for God's deliverance. He will fight for you. You know something? In a world like ours of activity, of busyness, of obsession with control and timings, this call to stand firm, to wait and be still is a huge act of faith, isn't it? Reichenen in his commentary says this, it is hard to be still and wait for God. Our temptation is to run away, cry out in fear, or try to fix things on our own. This is the journey of life, the faith journey that God has called us to. With him, one of trusting, one of relying on him, one of putting our faith in his word, in his care and protection and leading, for he knows what is best and good and perfect according to his purposes and plans. What would you do if you were there that day? Ah, panic, try and do something, blame Moses, stand firm, wait for the Lord, be still. These chapters forewarn us that our faith will never remain untested. These chapters assure us that in the midst of troubles and trials that seem meaningless, there is a deep sense of purposes of God at work. These chapters call us to obedience of faith. They also illustrate the comforting truth of a God of provincial care, foreseeing our needs, planning ahead for our welfare, and awaiting his solution and sufficiencies. And what we see from verse 15 onwards is the Lord fighting for his people. The people are not the main players in the narrative. Rather, they are powerless, helpless, as the mighty Egyptian army comes towards them and in front of them is, and behind them is a sea. Only God can save them at this point. They're helpless. Only God can step in and fight for them and rescue them. Only he can act. And that's exactly what he see in verses 19 and 20. Do you see it there? Firstly, God protects them. An angel of the Lord and a pillar of cloud, one and the same thing, indicating the presence of God, hid them from the Pharaoh and the army. They were shielded for a, a time so that they weren't attacked in verses 19 and 20. Then God instructs Moses in verses 21 and 22, stretch out your hand, Moses, over the sea. And all night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. And the Israelites went through on dry ground with a wall of sea on the right and left of them. What a scene that would have been. As they go through, young and old, the 90-year-old crawling along, the young buck running ahead on dry ground, 600,000 people going through this Red Sea with the wall either side and dry ground. Verse 23 and 25, the Egyptians pursue them. The Lord threw them into confusion, clogging their chariot wheels. Verse 25, see what is happening here? Even the Egyptians realize, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against us. And finally, verse 26 and 28, at daybreak, sunrise. Why that time? Why that time? The Egyptian god of Ra hurling in a new day. Do you remember that from a couple of weeks ago? Ra brought in the new day. He was the sun god of Egypt. And God, the great I am, at daybreak, 
was causing the sea to flow over, back over and cover the Egyptians. Not one of them survived. They lay dead on the shore, all to sea. And finally, the great nemesis that was Pharaoh, the Egyptian, was gone, judged. Justice had been exercised by God for their rebellion and their sinfulness and hardness of heart. They drowned. Why drowning? Is it justice for the order on the Hebrew babies? They were ordered to be drowned, weren't they? Back in chapter 2. And here we see God's justice come and they're drowned in the Red Sea. You see, God exercises his justice, his righteousness, and his judgment on the people here. And what we have is the Egyptians wiped out, never seen again, and all the people of Israel rescued, brought over on dry ground. In closing out this morning, I want to mention two points from this narrative concerning the crossing of the Red Sea. Two reasons as to why God led and rescued his people in this particular manner. The first reason that God does all this for his own glory. Do you see it there three times? Verse four, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army. Verse 17, I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army. Chapter 14, verse 18, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God led his people to this place that seemed utter madness, illogical. He placed them in a position of vulnerability. He caused Pharaoh, the anti-God type figure, to be the instrument of him to bring about his salvation and glory for his own name. God does all things, all plans, all purposes for the gaining of glory for his own namesake. And we must remember in this narrative that what was at stake was not simply their lives, but God's glory, which he would protect at all costs. God was going to rescue a people out of Egypt and then let them die in a wilderness? Never. His glory was too important. His name was too great. And God brings about his glory through these circumstances. And that's what God does. He will use circumstances life situations, rulers, good and bad, to bring about glory for his own name, to gain glory for who he is. You look at it in the Gospels. You'll see Herod attack the babies in Bethlehem. What does God do? He sends his son to Egypt to fulfill scripture, to bring glory to his own name. Pilate, who acknowledges that this man is innocent, before all, the Roman governor says he's innocent. Why? because the scriptures say to fulfill it. The Jews kill Jesus. Why does God do that? To bring glory to his own name, to bring glory to his own name. Folks, we don't live in a chaos world. We live in a world which God will use the life situations, rulers, governments, to bring about glory for his own name. And second and lastly, is that God will bring about his act of deliverance for his own praise. At the end of God's deliverance, we read in chapter 14, verse 31. Do you see it there? And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and Moses, his servant. They feared and put their trust in him. And in chapter 15, Moses, Miriam, and all the people respond by praising God for who he is and what he's done and what he will do in the future. You see, salvation always demands a response, a response of praise. And there are numerous psalms which sing hymns of praise about the crossing of the Red Sea. 
God guides and leads and brings deliverance so that his name is praised. And this act at the Red Sea is done so that people would praise the Lord. So as you look at these chapters this morning, they are for the glory of God to be exalted. They are for the praise of his name. And the question is, what about us today? What's our response to God's act of salvation? You see, God's salvation and deliverance is repeated throughout salvation history, and none more so than when we see the is when we see ourselves helpless. And yet the New Testament teaching is that we are dead in our sins. We face the wrath of God. We are helpless, just like the Israelites. But what does God do? He sends his son to rescue us. He died for us, not because there was something lovely or desirable about us, but rather he does it because we can't save ourselves, just like the Israelites. He does it for his own glory, and he does it for his own praise, so that people like you and I will respond to him in fear and trust, and that will praise and honor him, so that when that day comes, when God brings everything under his son's authority, there'll be a great multitude of people who will echo the following words, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise and glory and power forever and ever. Jamie Lawson could sing, I wasn't expecting that. God is never caught. He's never caught out. He will bring all circumstances, all deliverance for his own glory and praise so that a people will glorify him and praise him forever. What a wonderful passage this morning before us to highlight God's glory and God's praise. So let me close in prayer. Let me pray. Father God, we pray this morning as we absorb your word, as we mull it over, as we meditate on it, we pray, Father, that we would see all of life's circumstances that we would see the joy and the happiness, those times of hardship and sadness, all being worked for your glory and for your praise. Father, we praise you this morning that you take helpless people like us and you rescue us. That you say to us, stand firm, wait, be still. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will rescue you. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have the ultimate rescuer. And Father, as we head into another week, there will be so many things that we weren't expecting. But Lord, you're not surprised. Lord, guide us and lead us through, your, through this journey of faith with you. Help us to lean on your word and through your spirit, help us and guide us, we pray. Father, that we may bring much glory and praise to your name this week. Lord, help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.